0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the book of Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah 7-1 through 8-8. Then Isaiah said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? I think the key to this chapter is in recognizing we are not just talking about Ahaz, and the failure of a faith test. We're talking about the house of David and whether God's promises to David and Judah have any hope of success among such a faithless people. The king and his people are connected to one another. The people of the northern kingdom, Israel, have rejected the house of David. Isaiah has a prophetic word for those who are in Israel. Their end is very near. First, he has a word for Judah. Both prophetic messages follow the same pattern. The word for Judah addresses a moment of decision, a judgment, a remnant, and a glorious hope. The word for Israel addresses the same, a moment of decision, a judgment, a remnant, and a glorious hope. Chapter 5 suggested the failure of God's grace to Judah. They are like a well-tended vineyard that has received protection and provision, but yields a harvest of stink fruit. God's judgment was declared through a series of six woes, at the end of which God whistled for a distant nation to come and take his people into exile. Chapter 5 ends in deep gloom. Chapters 6 through 12 do not alleviate our fears for Judah. Even so, we see a light arise. Grace does triumph for a remnant. In chapter 6, we saw atoning grace applied to Isaiah. His sin was removed, and he was invited into a missional relationship with God. At the end of our section, in chapter 12, we will encounter a proclamation of joy and salvation. In between the prologue of chapter 6 and the epilogue of chapter 12, we encounter these two words. One to Judah and one to Israel. We see here judgment, but we also see hope. In this lesson, we'll address the first half of the word to Judah, which includes a moment of decision and a judgment. We'll take these two parts in turn, starting with the moment of decision in Isaiah 7, 1 through 17. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, That Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. That can get a little confusing. Let me explain who we have here before we keep going. We have a series of three names, three people and three places. All three people are kings. All three places are regional neighbors. The first name is Ahaz. He is the current king of Judah. His father was Jotham. We've skipped over his reign. His grandfather was Uzziah, the leper king whose death was reported in 6-1. Next, we have Rezin, the king of Aram. Aram is north of Israel. Its capital is Damascus. The third name is Pekah, the king of Israel. Sometimes Isaiah calls him Pekah, the son of Ramaliah. Sometimes Isaiah doesn't even bother with his name and just calls him the son of Ramalia. To add to the confusion, we encounter here a reference to Ephraim. The first king of Israel came from the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim was a son of Joseph. Jacob placed his hands on the head of Ephraim at the end of Genesis, conferring on him the blessing of the firstborn. But the prophecies at the end of Genesis declare that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Through Old Testament history, we see these tribes paired together, sometimes positively, as with Joshua and Caleb, but also negatively, as with Jeroboam of Ephraim, who leads the northern kingdom in its breakaway from Rehoboam, Solomon's son. So when you read Ephraim in the prophets, it's usually another way of referring to the kingdom of Israel, and that might be included here, but Ephraim is also the the tribe whose land was right across the border from Judah. So if these kings are gathering their forces in Ephraim, it means they're gathering them on the border. So for our present story, we have this series of names, Ahaz, Rezan, and Pekah, king of Judah, king of Aram, king of Israel, whose capital cities are Jerusalem, Damascus, and Samaria. Ahaz of Judah rules from Jerusalem, Rezan of Aram rules from Damascus, and Pekah of Israel rules from Samaria. We also get our first reference in this passage to the house of David. That might not catch our attention at first, but it does become important. This story is not mainly about Rezin or Pekah. This story is about Ahaz of the house of David. Even though the kings of the north have gone through several different dynasties in in their leaders, the house of David has always ruled in the south. We've always had a descendant of David. The two kings, Rezin and Pekah, have made an alliance against Judah. And when it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Along with his people, Ahaz is afraid. At the end of chapter 6, the king was like an oak tree cut down. Here, the king and his people are a forest shaking in the wind. That way of linking the two passages together with a word or a phrase is the kind of artistic touch we see throughout Isaiah. All right, that's the setup. Let's keep going. Verses 3 through 17. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Because Aram, with Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah, has planned evil against you, saying, Let's go up against Judah and terrorize it, and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another sixty-five years, Ephraim as a people will be shattered." And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord God, make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on your father's house Such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. God has in mind a test of faith for Ahaz. Isaiah serves as God's spokesman. He's given some pretty nice directions where to go, to the pool and the Fuller's Highway. Uh, He's told to take his son and go meet Ahaz, who's apparently inspecting a water source prior to the possibility of invasion from the north. The presence of Isaiah's son helps tie together the whole passage. That is this word to Judah. We have Isaiah's son in verse 3, a son named Emmanuel in verse 14. That's awesome. And a second son of Isaiah later in 8.3. Isaiah has named his son Shir Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. And that name expresses two aspects of the message God entrusted to Isaiah. Judgment is implicit in the idea of a return. Return from what? Well, from exile. Hope is communicated through belief that some will survive the exile, that there will be a remnant. God's message to Ahaz here begins with a bit of trash talk against the two kings' resident, Pekah. Don't be afraid of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands just because they burn with anger. My Bible says the anger of these two kings is fierce. In the Hebrew, it is literally fiery anger. They may be fiery in their anger, but God says they are smoldering stubs. Don't fear them. The theme here is faith. The message is similar to the one God gave Joshua when he prepared to enter the promised land. Do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Trust God, Ahaz. Do not fear what these two men plan to do. The test is serious. There is real danger. These nations are of comparable size and two of them have now teamed up against the one. And they're not planning a simple hit-and-run raid into Judah. They say they plan to breach the walls of Jerusalem and set up some puppet king named Tabil. They plan to overthrow the house of David. That's a mistake on the part of Israel. God might allow a raid against his wicked people, Judah. A plan to remove David from the throne of Jerusalem, however, is an attack on the promises of God. So this test of faith calls on Ahaz to remember who he is and to remember who God is and to remember the promises to the house of David. There's a chiastic structure to God's words in verses 7 to 9. The outer lines, that is the first line and the last line, parallel one another in thought. Then the inner lines parallel one another, and we have a final line in the middle. The first outer line communicates a definitive word from God, about this conspiracy to remove the house of David from leadership over Judah. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. I think this is where Gandalf got his famous phrase from, You shall not pass. So that's, that's all I can think about. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. That's good news. But it does not guarantee security for Ahaz. Because the last line declares, If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. That line's not definitive, it's conditional. Ahaz's position depends on his faith. Aram and Israel will fail, but Judah's not safe. Another judgment may fall on them if Ahaz refuses to believe God. The two inner lines simply define who the conspirators are, for the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. The central line ignores Aram and declares the fate of Israel, the northern kingdom. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim as a people will be shattered. That's not a conditional word, that's a definitive word. Ephraim will be shattered. Sometimes prophecy is precise in 65 years, but it's not always easy to know what it's being precise about. Further to the north, you know, past Aram, the growing empire of Assyria is preparing to pounce. So first on Aram as it moves south and then on Israel. The Assyrian siege of Damascus began in 734 BC. If this year is prior to that, if this is 735 BC, the 65-year span of time mentioned here is from 735 to 670 BC. That seems to miss the fact that Israel was overrun Samaria destroyed, and the people carried off to exile in 722 BC. That would be in 13 years, not 65 years. Though something significant did happen at the end of 65 years, Esarhaddon, the next king of Assyria, imported foreign settlers into Israel. The poor Jewish remnant that had remained in the land intermarried with these foreign settlers and eventually took on new religious customs That's why in Jesus' day, the people of this region, the Samaritans, were not recognized as fellow Jews. We can't know for sure without asking God for an explanation, but when we recognize that the removal of Jews from northern Israel included both an exile of Jews out and an importation of foreign peoples in, then the 65-year time frame works out rather well. To summarize what we have here, Aram and Israel planned to overthrow Judah. God, however, communicated to Ahaz that he would protect Judah and overthrow the two attacking kingdoms. Judah would be protected now, and the further security of Judah would depend on a response of faith from Ahaz. This is the moment of decision. Isaiah has set before Ahaz a test of faith. He's received a message that he can choose to believe in or not. Isaiah provides him with a way to show his faith by asking for a sign. Listen to the test again, because at first we might think Ahaz is responding appropriately. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Do you hear Ahaz I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. What's he saying? That could be a sincere faith response. Jesus rebukes Satan with similar words from Deuteronomy, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But that's not what's going on here. We can tell from Isaiah's response, he's going to say, Would you try the patience of God? This is a test of faith to Ahaz, but Ahaz ends up testing God. And this can be tricky when we interpret biblical narrative. People say and do things that could reflect faith or faithlessness. It depends on what's going on inside of them, and we're often not told that in the narrative. Instead, we're supposed to pick up information on their internal state from the response of God or from the consequences of their actions. Isaiah's immediate rebuke of Ahaz reveals to us the state of heart. You might even notice that when Isaiah first communicated to Ahaz, he said, ask your God for a sign. But then when Isaiah rebukes him, he says, would you try my God? So it's not Ahaz. Ahaz is not showing that God is his God. Isaiah sees right through his false humility, far be it from me to test God. That's a cop-out. That's what that is. If we were to go and read 2 Kings 16, we would see the corruption of Ahaz's spirit. He already knows what he's going to do. In fact, he's already done it. He sent a messenger to tiglath pileser inviting the Assyrian king to attack Aram and Israel. Ahaz does not want to hear what Isaiah has to say. He does not want to open himself up for a word from God that will go contrary to the foreign policy he has already chosen. He also doesn't want to look like he's rejecting Yahweh. His far be it from me to test God is a smokescreen to make him appear faithful while he follows his own strategy. He's not praying over this. Following the plans of his own heart, he will go from bad to worse. He rejects this offer from Isaiah, God's messenger. In a year's time, Tiglath-Pileser will defeat Aram and will march into Damascus and will set up an ornate altar to an Assyrian god. Ahaz will become so enamored with the power and pageantry of the victors that he will order a copy made of that altar to be placed in Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem. He will move God's bronze altar to the side and he will himself consecrate this new, better, you know, more, I don't know, technologically, spiritually advanced altar um, himself. He will sacrifice in the temple. And this is the way when we grow up in a culture and we, we have this traditional religion that we just kind of sort of play with, but we're not really sincere about it, that's going to give way to a more a dominant or popular cultural expression of spirituality. What's the spirituality that really works in life? What's the spirituality here of, of military victory? Ahaz rejects the word of God to become a spiritual innovator. That's all going to happen later. We have to go to 2 Kings to read it. What Isaiah is telling us about here is the moment of decision. Ahaz was given a choice. He chose to refuse God's offer. Then Isaiah said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? God was not asking Ahaz to give up his reign to the prophet Isaiah. Faith does not mean simple, blind obedience without thought or question. Faith does, however, require an attitude of simple trust. Ahaz refused to trust. I don't want to make light of the difficulty of Ahaz's position. I will never come close to leading a nation, and I will never have a task anywhere near as challenging as developing foreign policy in the Middle East. I think the significance of Ahaz's position is highlighted by the fact that God sent Isaiah to him. You know, God raised up a prophet to speak his words directly to Ahaz, precisely because of the significance of his spiritual leadership as a son of David bound up in difficult times. I know I will never approach this level of responsibility. I am struck, however, by the basic attitude God requires from Ahaz. The basic response of faith is true for all of us, no matter what level of spiritual leadership or influence we're called to perform. We all start the same. Whether you're called to lead a Bible study, lead as a mom or dad in the home, lead a task or committee at work, lead in worship, lead in government, whatever the environment, whatever the scope, the beginning of wisdom for whatever faces you, whatever's immediately in front of you, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's in Proverbs, that's in Job, that's in Ecclesiastes, that's the wisdom literature. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And we saw this with Isaiah. We start with a vision of God. And when we're overwhelmed by who God really is, then that pulls out a response. Isaiah's experience works for all of us. God asks, whom shall I send? We who believe respond, here am I, send me. Now, where did you say we're going? Whatever the job, whatever the mission, that's always the first step with God. We express our trust, our dependence on him. This doesn't mean that God's going to take over and do everything for us and make all the decisions. It doesn't mean we stop planning, stop using our mind and expertise. God expects his servants to give what they have to the task, their gifts, their knowledge, their experiences. Faith does not equal irresponsibility. Faith does not remove the spiritual leader from the equation. Faith does not take away hard work. Ahaz has been invited to focus on God in the midst of this scary, challenging situation. Take a deep breath. Remember who you are as son of David. Remember who God is, king over all nations, and express your dependence on him. God wants to reassure you in this Ahaz. God didn't even wait for you to come to him. God sent Isaiah to you. Ask for a sign so that you might be fully reassured that God stands for you against these invading kings. Ahaz refused the offer. God gave a sign anyway. Verses 14 to 17, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. A faith sign communicates something true about who God is. Sometimes miracles serve as signs that affirm the word of God. God gave Moses that kind of sign when he turned his staff into a serpent. Jesus' healing of a blind man was called a sign, not only because the sign confirmed the word of Jesus, but also because the sign itself communicated that Jesus is the source of truth, the light of the world, who enables true sight. A sign can also stand as a marker reminding us that God has accomplished what he said he would do. That's the kind of sign God gave Moses when he told him, this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. God tells them what's going to happen. And when it does happen, it's a sign. When they eventually arrive back at the mountain where God first called Moses, that would be a sign to them that God accomplishes exactly what God says he will accomplish. The sign in Isaiah 7:14 14 is like that last kind of sign. People will look at this child and be reminded when he reaches a certain age that God said something would come to pass by that time. And they will see that it has come to pass, and they will see that God keeps his promises. But I think there's even more to this child as a sign than that. Let's start with what God said would happen. This is the clear part of the prophecy. The two kings you dread, that's Aram and Israel, Rezan and Pekah, will be forsaken. Forsaken is a strong term when applied to Israel. God will no longer protect Israel. And that may sound sad to us, but it would sound like good news to Ahaz. Even though Ahaz did not ask for a sign, God affirms his word that Ahaz need not worry about these two stubs of a firebrand. Unfortunately for Ahaz, he will probably give himself credit for figuring out how to deal with Aram and Israel. God helps those who help themselves, right? Well, the second outcome is not so positive for Ahaz. The Lord will bring on Judah such days as they have not seen since the nation was torn in two. That sounds bad. When will these outcomes come to pass? Well, that's more difficult to say. It will happen by the time the boy is old enough to refuse evil and choose good. That sounds like a jab at Ahaz, who's just chosen evil over good. Ahaz doesn't have the excuse of being a a little toddler. But when does a little boy have the ability to refuse evil and choose good? Some would say as late as 12 or 13 when they're on the verge of becoming an adult. If that's the time period, then the prophecy will have become fully true by that time with Aram and Israel defeated by Assyria and the Assyrians having overrun the land of Judah. That will all be true in 13 years. I have trouble believing we need to wait 12 or 13 years before a child knows how to choose between good and bad. I remember a clear incident over a plate of broccoli when my oldest daughter was one and a half years old I made it very plain to her that she would be punished if she continued to throw her broccoli on the floor. She took the opportunity to stare me down. I mean, she locked eyes and held that broccoli out and dropped it. In some basic way, she knew she was choosing rebellion over submission. The one-and-a-half-year time frame would also work out since the initial defeat of Aram and Israel will have taken place by this point. So depending on how you take the comment about refusing evil and choosing good, we have a range of about a year and a half to 13 years. We also have to ask, who's the child? Some have suggested we're not talking about a particular child, <clears throat> but all children about to be born in Judah. They take the name Emmanuel to be a collective. A problem with that interpretation is that it doesn't prove to be much assigned to Ahaz. And the point of this faith encounter with Ahaz seems to indicate the sign will be knowable and impressive. Another suggestion is that the child will be Ahaz's child. And that seems a more likely possibility. We are concerned with the house of David. But we don't have confirmation in the immediate context. And the child can't be Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, because he's already about six years old by the time of this encounter. Does the the child of Ahaz fit the kind of sign that we might expect from the language? And considering some of the language of the text, there is mystery around this child. So the sign was to be as deep as Sheol and high as heaven. His name was to be Emmanuel, which translates God with us. There's no reference to a father. He's born of a virgin. You know, There's some mystery here. There's been a challenge among scholars about the translation of the word virgin in this text. My Croatian Bible and all my English versions say, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. My NASB does have a note beside the word virgin that says, or maiden. And that's the alternative. A maiden will be with child and bear a son. There is another Hebrew word that specifically means virgin. Isaiah did not use that word. He did use the word maiden. We have to be honest about that and not make the word mean what we want it to mean simply because we have this long tradition of translation. But I don't think that's what modern translations are doing. Even though the word in Hebrew is maiden, I believe the definition of the word includes virgin. We might explain it in this way. The Hebrew word used here means more than just virgin, but it does not mean less than virgin. English used to use the word maiden more frequently. The word has really dropped out of our vocabulary. I think the only place we see it kind of regularly is in a wedding So we have bridesmaids, and that refers to the young women who stand around a bride at her wedding. I don't know if anybody does this anymore, but it used to be customary to differentiate between a maid of honor and a matron of honor. She's called a maid if unmarried and a matron if married. An old maid would be an older unmarried woman. The distinction still exists to a degree in Croatian. Djevojčica is a little girl. Djevojka is an unmarried young woman, and Devitsa is a virgin. I asked a friend in preparation for this, if a young woman today of, of 17 or 18 years old got married, would she still be a, a Djevojka? And my friend said, no, no, she'd be a Jena. When you get married, you, you become a Jena. It's a general term for woman, but it has an implication in that case of, of being a married woman. So though it's no longer true in much of society, in older times, the word maiden in English or djevojka in Croatian was understood to refer to a virgin because the girl was by definition not married. You don't use the word maiden or djevojka for a married woman. And if you were not married in those times, you were not sexually active. That's the assumption behind the meaning of the word. And that assumption was certainly true for how Isaiah would use the language. He would not have used this word if he was speaking of a sexually active woman. He would have used the word for wife. Maidens do not have children, at least not without scandal. The woman being referred to here is understood to be a virgin. When Matthew quotes Isaiah seven fourteen in reference to Mary, he doesn't use the Greek word for maiden. He uses the Greek word for virgin. That's in Matthew 1, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. We might be a little skeptical, and we might say that Matthew is knowingly changing the word to virgin to fit the Christian belief that Mary was a virgin, but what Matthew is actually doing is quoting from the Septuagint. He doesn't really translate the Greek. He uses the accepted Greek translation of the Jewish Bible that Jews are familiar with. We're not sure exactly when the translation of, of Isaiah was produced, but it's, it's likely more than 100 years before the birth of Jesus, and it was produced by Jewish scholars. Those Jewish scholars chose to use the Greek word for virgin when they translated this Hebrew word, affirming a decision to continue to use the word virgin in our modern translations, especially if we no longer assume that maidens are virgins. Now we have something very curious going on. This sign seems to refer both to a real child that will soon be born and also to a much more mysterious child who has no father who fulfills the wonder of a sign that might descend to hell and reach to heaven, who is born of a virgin, and whose name is Emmanuel. Which of these two options is primary? Is Isaiah speaking of immediate child or a future child? What's the correct interpretation? How do we decide between the two? I'm not sure we're going to have to decide. Sometimes Hebrew prophecy includes a an immediate, concrete, real fulfillment that is also symbolic of a future fulfillment. The present Emmanuel might be a type of the future Emmanuel. That is a possibility. We don't want to assume that in this case just to make our interpretation job easier. We need to ask whether or not the text gives us indication that we should expect both a present and a future fulfillment of this prophecy. I believe the text does point us in this direction. We've already considered that the baby needs to be a present sign that will soon affirm God's word to Ahaz, and that the baby is referred to with mysterious language that points to something much more. We also have the curious reality that Isaiah mentions two more children in this prophecy to Judah, in the word to Judah. The next child we encounter is a present child born to Isaiah and his wife. He's mentioned in chapter 8. And then there's another son of David who will reign forever, mentioned in chapter 9. I definitely lean towards interpreting the sign in 7.14 as having a dual fulfillment in these two later children. I will speak more about Isaiah's child in a minute, and we'll wait for our next lesson to talk about the future child. And I will say that my opinion is certainly affected by Matthew's affirmation for us that this verse is definitely talking about Mary and Jesus. I'm not going to disagree with Matthew. And it's only affirmed when you really get into Isaiah and you're like, wow, there is some stuff going on here. And moving along, Ahaz was given a test that included a sign and an outcome. And just as we have needed to recognize a little bit of complexity in the sign, maybe a dual fulfillment, we also need to recognize a little bit of complexity in the outcome. God had said, do not fear these two regional powers. They will not overtake you. Ahaz failed the test. He did not trust God or God's messenger. God still planned to fulfill his word that Aram and Israel would not overcome Judah. But before giving Ahaz the sign, God had said, if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Ahaz decision made a difference. It is not now the time for Judah to be exiled like Israel. That judgment is still future. But Judah is going to suffer as a direct result of the failed spiritual leadership of Ahaz. Leadership matters. Leadership has consequences. Isaiah explains the outcome of Ahaz's failed faith test in the judgment of 718-88. to 8, 8. I will read that whole passage now and then just make a few comments since it is mostly a development of what we've already covered. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges of the cliff, on all the thorn bushes, and on all the watering places. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor hired from regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, And it will also remove the beard. Now in that day, a man can keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep. And because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds. For everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. As for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. Then the Lord said to me, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, swift as the booty, speedy as the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah. So I approached the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry out, My father, or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Again the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloah, and rejoice in resin in the son of Remaliah, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overthrow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck. And the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Isaiah repeats the unique image from 526 of God whistling for an invading army to overwhelm Judah. The army would be like the flies of Egypt or the bees of Assyria coming to plague the land of Judah, swarming up from the Nile or the Euphrates, coming to plague the land of Judah, penetrating into every place imaginable. Isaiah then switches to an image of Judah like a captive man whose hair is shaved off in dishonor. Then we get another reference to curds and honey. The first mention of curds and honey was a connection to the sign of the child. That reference was positive, suggesting the luxury of a well-fed baby. Now Isaiah turns the image upside down. The land's been demolished. All a man has to eat is the milk of cows and sheep kept alive by grazing off the land. And the honey he finds will be wild. This is not luxury. This is basic sustenance. It's a a living off the land. Vineyards and, and cultivated ground will be overtaken by briars and thorns. The land of Judah has been invaded. Crops are destroyed. People are gone. It's a bit of, apocalyptic desolation. Isaiah switches back to prose at the beginning of chapter 8 to tell us about how God commanded him to publicly display this prophetic phrase, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And the idea there is that, that very soon this powerful, quickly moving army is going to sweep in and booty are the spoils of war and the people are the prey. God instructed Isaiah to set up a placard with these words, emphasizing the speed of the coming judgment. The placard will point to two events. First, Isaiah will have a child whose name, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, is that phrase. That's the Hebrew for the phrase, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. I think I'd rather have his brother's name, a remnant will return. It's not always easy being a second child, I guess, especially when your dad's a prophet. I believe... This is the child of the sign. The clock begins to tick at the moment of his birth. The second event we expect is the actual fulfillment of the judgment. The posting of the placard is to be done in a public way such that Uriah and Zechariah, not necessarily faithful men, are able to give public witness to the fact that, yes, Isaiah is the one who put this up and he put it up at this time before his wife had had the child, and while Ahaz still thought he was on good terms with Assyria. Isaiah's wife here is called a prophetess. It's not clear whether this simply indicates she is the wife of a prophet, or whether she also at times prophesied. I've also read the suggestion that her birth of this particular child is an act of prophecy, in that in the birth, God's word is being proclaimed through her. I do realize this child doesn't fully fit the language given to us about the child who would be a sign. Isaiah's wife has already had one child, so she's not a maiden. Also, this child does not fit the mysterious language of up to heaven and down to hell that suggests something particularly spectacular. And we might say this child could not be the one since he's not named Emmanuel. And he certainly will not fulfill the concept of Emmanuel like Jesus will. But to be technical, Jesus was also not named Emmanuel either. He was named Jesus. And though this child is not going to fulfill the meaning of Emmanuel, as Jesus will, the phrase God with us also has specific application for these present circumstances. This child of Isaiah is born in a time when both names could work. We see both truce, swift as the booty, and also Emmanuel. Judgment is coming, yet God is still with us. Isaiah concludes artfully comparing the gentle Shiloh to the mighty Euphrates. The Shiloah was a small stream that brought water into Jerusalem. Saying these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloah is to say they have rejected the Lord's provision. Ahaz is looking to the might of the world. He's looking beyond God. He's despising the the smallness of what God has given him. The Euphrates here is literally just called the river, but whenever the river is mentioned in Hebrew without qualifications in the Old Testament, It is a reference to the river Euphrates. Ahaz turned from God, looking to Assyria for rescue. But that river Euphrates is a treacherous one. Once its course turns towards Israel, there is no containing its waters. After engulfing Aram and Israel, it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. This is the dual nature of the judgment. The Assyrians will overwhelm Judah like floodwaters overflowing their banks, like a bird of prey whose wings spread out over the whole breadth of the land. The cry to Emmanuel in this case sounds like a cry either to the people of the land or to the king of the land. It will spread its wings over your land, O Emmanuel, There's some mystery here about who we're calling Emmanuel, but I think we understand the idea God is with us. He is with us even as he judges us, and he will not let us be completely swept away. When we feel overwhelmed and the floodwaters rise even up to our neck, God is with us. Even when the pain is our own fault, even when we cause the flood, God is with us. The waters do not rise up over our head. God is with us. There is hope. God is with us. O Emmanuel, God is with us. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study of Isaiah, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the book of Romans, the Pentateuch, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Acts.